I think these are a net positive. Like any other technology we talk about, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So the question is, how do we develop a set of norms around this kind of stuff? Right now, like the skill that's more important than anything else in the dating world is like, how do you set up that profile? I think it's healthier for people to learn the skills of like healthy social interaction, healthy risk taking, being respectful, interacting with someone and not being a jerk about it versus like, how do I make sure that I'm flashy in this way and I look this way in my photos? Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, what's happening? Um, well, I heard you went to an interesting book party last night, met some new people. Yes, I went to this uh, talk by Todd Rose, who wrote this book and the study that we actually talked about a few episodes back called Collective Illusions. And if people remember, this is when we were talking about the differences between people's public and private sentiments, which is, you know, reveals that generally speaking, it's like very much like related to the mission of this show like people will say one thing but they truly believe something else mm -hmm. and they feel like other people share some views that they don't have and they just feel pressured to not you know state what their actual beliefs are but it was really interesting because after the talk somebody came i had a back and forth with him about the methodology if you remember we were talking mm -hmm. about like how do you know somebody's private sentiments like how could you measure that yeah and he was really good he, he gave a good description of it but somebody came up to me afterwards and said basically implied that we were skeptical of him and i don't that's not how i remember our reporting on him mm -hmm. i remember us actually loving that study but I have to yeah i don't i don't either but yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I do have a preconceived like bias to favor that argument that people are self-censoring. Yeah, I think that's yeah. that's kind of the case. So I, I would say I'm probably more in his camp than not. But yeah, the methodology is definitely like, I mean, I think it's a difficult thing to accomplish, but anecdotally, it certainly seems to be the case that people have yeah. conflicting, almost like Soviet-like personal and public opinions. Yeah, what I thought was really interesting was what he was talking about. He said that persuasion is not the answer. I think this is like a lot of political activists and strategists are like, all right, let me just run ads trying to say like, hey, like here's what the data says about this particular policy. Mm -hmm. What he says is we should do more just revealing what the majority believes about certain things. And that just makes it safe for people to say what they actually believe, which I yeah. th found fascinating. Courage is contagious, 100%. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. always good to see, you know, Lost Debate fans out in the wild. Um, there were a bunch of people at this party in particular, which I guess like says a lot about us that an Upper West Side fancy book party <laughs> is like our constituency <laughs> right now. Uh, but we've got an exciting show right now. Uh, we have a story about Oregon. This is both a political story because there is a hot governor's race that not a lot of people are paying attention to in that state that's tied to a controversial drug policy that hasn't really been reaping the dividends that were promised. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a story about a documentary at Sundance that has stirred a lot of controversy around cult cultural appropriation and free speech. But we're gonna start with something else that affects a lot of people's lives. Over half of people in the US are single and dating apps have been on the rise 20 years ago wired magazine said at this point basically everybody will be using dating apps and mm -hmm. you know you know trying to meet people in person will be akin to going to a library and just wandering the stacks like something that you would do but probably not that often uh and you know 10 years after that piece came out tinder was released mm -hmm. and we're now celebrating its 10th birthday ricky yeah. What do we know about dating apps and how they've changed our culture since well, Tinder came out? I think they're just the latest manifestation in a long history of people being very creative to patch the kind of loneliness that they feel. Um, 
there's like the earliest counterparts I would say are personal ads, which I found one from uh, 1695 in England that I thought was particularly interesting. A 30 year old who was looking for, quote, some good young gentlewoman with um, a fortune that it would be the equivalent of 300,000 Great Britain pounds today, which oh, is wow. interesting. So people have been fishing the market for a long time in public forums. I and people, I feel like people were more transactional back in the day, at least from like pop <laughs> I don't know. culture. I mean, well, know? I think that dating apps have returned us back to the transactional yeah, we'll get sort to of that. thing. But, yeah. um, <laughs> Different kinds you know? of transactions. <laughs> um, then we had students at Stanford in um, 1959 who used punch cards to kind of um, like use a very rudimentary computer to match people up. So we've had technology involved since then. Then there was the era of video cassette dating. In like the 80s, it was kind of trendy to do um, like videos of, hey, I'm so-and-so and this is what I like. And then you'd get a tape and like go through all your potential matches and tell them who you're interested in and you get to see them. And it's like, you know, it's like a proto dating app where here are a bunch of different candidates and then you you see if you have a mutual attraction. But mm. um, the results are a little cringy, I would say. Can you be okay, early to bed, early to rise makes a woman healthy, wealthy and wise. That's why you're wiser than me. It's Stephen. Hi, I'm Maurice. I'm an executive by day and a wild man by night. Hi, my name's Monroe. Uh, you've probably already noticed that I have incredibly blue eyes. Hi, my name is Phil. Uh, most of my friends call me Big Phil. Okay, um, I like to talk to people uh, deep into the night. <laughs> There's like a lot of stuff in dating apps today yeah. that is that is as cringeworthy like the, as anything Like on else. Hinge, you can do these like voice responses now and I don't think I've seen that executed in a way that was not just so cringy ever once. Um, but then Match.com in 1995 was when it really became like like a digital era of dating, but that was still kind of weird and fringe and like stigmatized. Like, yeah, let me explain what you? it was viewed as back yeah. then. So there was like two things back at that time. And then that was when I was like in middle school going to high school, but that culture basically existed for probably the next 10 years mm -hmm. where you had, you know, there's some pop culture you know, references like you've got mail that I thought that made it, you know, more um, acceptable and, you know, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, et cetera. But by and large, if you like I met somebody online at that point, you're probably older, right? It's mm -hmm. like associated with more middle-aged people who hadn't found anybody. Yeah. And it's kind of taboo. Like it's like you, the last resort. Yeah, like people thing. now, you see your parents, you're like, how did you meet? We met online. That's mm -hmm. like my brother, my sister, right? So it's, you know, the it's like a thing that you just straight up say to people without yeah. any worry about how you're gonna be judged. Back then, you'd probably come up with some like alternate story mm -hmm. about how you met. But I think things started changing in the early 2000s around this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would say even a couple of years ago, I heard people saying like, oh yeah, like we met at the grocery store. Right, and they'd, like, tell some people you, still like, yeah. do that, but. Yeah, um, but today I think, especially because of the pandemic, um, like rates are through the roof dating online especially when you're locked down and you can't even meet people in person is just so ubiquitous and not a not a taboo anymore um 30 of u.s adults say that they've used a dating app and within the 18 to 29 age demographic it's 48 percent, so almost half and it even spans up it's only 13 percent, but senior citizens 13 percent of them have used one too which is i wonder if my grandma has you my know, dad has ourtime.com my dad definitely <laughs> he'll kill has. me ourtime.com for golden oldies my dad has already married and divorced somebody he met on an app um, oh, and wow. that was his That's fourth marriage mm. to a third person 
do that math at home. Uh, and now he's <laughs> dating somebody else who actually is quite wonderful. Maybe this will be his fifth. But yeah, it affects everybody. My grandma actually was funny. <laughs> she like snuck off at our last family gathering to talk to her boyfriend. And <laughs> we all went nuts and, and she got really embarrassed about it. But I think like the history of this stuff is really interesting because it's been playing out before our eyes. Yeah. Like, the, you know, we think about Tinder as being the revolutionary technology. And that's what this segment is really you know, what got us to talk about yeah. this is that we just passed their 10th birthday. Yeah. But what I found interesting is that Grindr was actually the technology that was the most revolutionary. And it mm -hmm. came out a few years before Tinder. And it was the first one to truly use GPS. Yeah. And that Tinder's real revo um, revolutionary feature was that it was the swiping. Yeah. And then you just saw an explosion of new technologies after that that I think are still dominant t today. So Grindr was 2009. That was GPS. Tinder swiped 2012. Bumble, which was a Tinder founder, uh, started to say, like, the women have to initiate the, the mm -hmm. conversation. Hinge, which is really popular here in New York, especially among, like, you know, higher yeah. income populations, limits the amount of people you could see a day. There's Field, which is, like, you know, if you're, you want to be more explicit about your sexual preferences or alternative relationship models. And then you've got stuff like Raya, which is like exclusivity, kind of like the mm -hmm. Soho house of dating. But Ricky, there there are more niche dating apps out there, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> there are. There's some really interesting ones. Um, just to name a few. Gluten-free singles, um, tall friends. Maybe I should sign up for that one. Our time for old people like my dad. He's He had some luck on there. Um, what the is that one called? Our time? Ourtime.com. Yeah. Um, the right stuff, which we had talked about. Oh, if yeah. your political orientations are the most important thing or meet my dog, you can use your pet as your kind of icebreaker there. Mm. There are um, definitely a lot of crevices, but I would also... Can I add a few? There was yeah. some that I found here I really loved. So you've got S'more, which is non-superficial. I think this is a smart one where you, before you match, it's kind of like love is blind for oh. dating apps. You can't see the face until you match, which I find fascinating. Mm. Uh, there's Vegly, plant-based. There's Newit, which is an astrology match. Tastebud, which is music match. Kippo, which is for gamers. Bristler, for guys with beards. Uh, and Thursday, which is, I think, the most interesting, which is you can only match one day of the week and go out one day of the week, I presume is Thursday. But the one I love, which is an oldie but goodie, uh, I spent a lot of time in the South and I would you know, be in random motel rooms and I would get these ads for farmersonly.com. This is the worst date I've ever been on. I bet my shoes cost more than your stupid boat does. I am not touching your worm. No more blind dates for me. Something said me, get off, get off, get off, get off. Whoa! You don't have to be lonely at farmersonly.com. City folks just don't get it. So if, if people are not watching on YouTube, essentially there's two people on a bad date on a boat and some other woman like uses her fishing rod to pull one another woman off the boat. Mm -hmm. But the thing I love about Farmers Only is their jingle, which I have not gotten out of my head ever since like probably 15 years ago. Have they just been ads. trolling us? Like how can this actually be a thing? People use it because I think this gets to like a very sincere part of dating apps is that there's no one story of dating apps. And that's what the data says. It's like yeah. if you live in a rural area, the amount of serendipitous encounters that you have are very limited. Mm -hmm. So Farmers Only, although hilarious and very self-aware, they're serving a real need, but that goes beyond farmers, right? All the stuff I talked about, they're yeah. funny, but they're also for real. Like if you're somebody who does take astrology seriously, like that app is going to be really important. Or if you're, you know, 
religious or ethnic identity mm -hmm. is important to you or your hobbies. Like this is where I think the real power and promise of dating apps comes from is that it allows people to differentiate, find people that yeah. that really help them fulfill like themselves in whatever they, they want. And I think that's one of the reasons why if you parse through the data, for instance, like the LGBTQ community mm -hmm. use the apps more, they're more positive about the apps than anybody more. else. Considerably yeah. more. And that's, I think, in part why Grindr was like the first major app to explode is because it's a smaller dating pool. It's more difficult to, and there's also stigma that LGBT people face. And so it's easier to have a forum where that's kind of controlled for. Yeah, or there's um, a collective illusion around it, right? Like this is, gets to like, I don't know yeah. how big or small the pool is, but for sure the perception in a lot of places in yeah. America was and, and still continues to be that it doesn't exist if you live in certain county, yeah. in certain places. And so if there's a tool that allows you to sort of bypass the social stigma mm -hmm. uh, and not have to, worry about the discrimination that comes from that but also like anybody else you want as many options as you possibly can have like that well, is I powerful think, you know yeah i mean i would say that that there's a kind of like a curve where there becomes too many options yeah, so and then people become this. paralyzed this is called the paradox of choice the paradox of choice right yeah so, yeah explain this concept for um, our listeners so that's a term that's coined by barry schwartz who wrote a book about it but essentially like to boil down the theory in a non-dating context, um, the reason that he kind of posits that someone would prefer a Trader Joe's sort of shopping experience where if you want ketchup, there are like three ketchups of different varieties and those are your options and you pick between them and then you move on versus you go to like some big grocery chain and there's 50 and right. you might think that you'd rather have 50 because who wouldn't want to have more options and more choice, but then you spend more time thinking about it and you're less satisfied with your choice in the end. And so he has, um, his theory has been kind of applied to dating apps and he has agreed that there's a certain type of personality that he calls the maximizer who kind of has the feeling in the back of their head that like, well, the the more perfect person could be around the corner and the, or the more perfect ketchup is right. on the next shelf or whatever. So I think that there's, there's definitely a personality type in the, like the the ample availability of people like no partner is ever perfect everyone requires compromise but i think that there is an incentive with dating apps especially in urban areas that there's always another option if right. someone kind of like some something peeves you or you kind of get the ick a little bit then you can just be like oh whatever like right. i'll just like spark a conversation with this match that i haven't talked to in a while or whatever yeah i think that's definitely a huge trade-off and a potential downside and i think something that you know like a lot of things that technology revolutionizes is that new generations have to learn to show a certain amount of self-restraint and, and yeah. set up a new set of values that older generations probably didn't have to worry about as much and this is related to Another problem with dating apps, or at least a challenge with them, is the inequality of dating apps, mm -hmm. right? So there's interesting data about the economics of dating apps, right? So they're, they're actually more more heavily utilized on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale mm -hmm. and actually more of the harassing behavior and also like either the sending of um, un solicited nudes or straight up harassment all that uh you know self-reporting of that behavior is way way high sometimes two or three times as high on the lower end of the socioeconomic it's also scale much higher in lower age demographics particularly among young women so that mm. might be associated yeah, you might, might not be able to yeah, yeah you might not be able to parse that out necessarily yeah that's interesting but, but the, the really fascinating part of this it gets to like the sort of the, the paradox of choice part of it is like a cousin of that is the fact that there's like such an inequality of likes yeah. where uh, 
particularly among men, but this is also a phenomenon among women, uh, there is a small percentage, like the top 10% of men, uh, get an outsized amount of likes. And I'm not just talking mm -hmm. about like what you would naturally think. You know, Scott Galloway uh, ran some of these numbers and he cites these in his new book. He talked about them on Bill Maher recently. Whenever technology comes into an industry, it consolidates it. Mating has been consolidated in the worst way. 50 men on Tinder, 50 women. 46 of the women show all of their attention to just four men, leaving 46 men pursuing just four women. If, if mating was a country, it would be more unequal than Venezuela. We have huge mating inequality. E-commerce was disastrous for retail. Social media was disastrous for everybody. Online dating is disastrous for mating and for men. I think this is a phenomenon that's true of both. If you look at the data, it still is a crisis among women, the inequality. It is particularly pronounced among men. It's I'm not sure why it is though. Like what's your sense of like why that problem is more pronounced among men on, the, on these dating apps than women? I don't think it's a really kosher explanation, but I think that women, um, probably tend to look like hyper analyze matches and people on these apps and scrutinize them more. And men tend to be more indiscriminate in their yeah. dating than women are. And I think yeah. that's just a reality. That There's one um, stat that's that's crazy to me that women tend to rate men as worse looking than average 80% of the time. There's also like <laughs> the majority of women will filter for six foot plus on dating apps, which is like a much smaller portion of the population. Right. And like also like I'm five nine, I think I'm allowed to have some sort of metric there, but I like my mom's five two and she's like, I won't date a man that's like less than six feet tall. Right. Like, I don't know, like there's just, we can filter for people with these super myopic, um, completely superficial qualities that if we met someone in person, you might say like, oh, that doesn't really matter to me because I know this about them now. Right. And it incentivizes us to just reduce people, to look at them as commodities, to cut someone off just based on like a year of their age or an inch of their height or a mile in your radius. I mean, I think that there's, there are certainly benefits, but I also think there are considerable downsides, especially for generations that have only known the 10 years past Tinder, right. including my own. And I think, you know, we're the loneliest generation. We're the most depressed generation. We're having the least sex despite having all the tools in front of us. It's really hard to talk about this. Like, I think it's Dak Shepard or somebody talked about how the most common form of discrimination is, is looks discrimination mm -hmm. in our society. It's like a thing that's just, you're allowed to say, like everybody, you sit around and, and it crosses political di uh, dynamics. You just sit around and be like, he's ugly, she's ugly. This person's good looking or not good looking. And it's as immutable as anything, right? Most of the time, there are certain mm -hmm. things you could do to look better or worse according to whatever society standards that you live in. But, uh, you know, like a lot of things, it's genetic. It has to do with environment and things like that. Now, I'm not saying that we should like police speech on this. I'm just saying it's something worth considering when we talk about these dating apps. Um, yeah, it's definitely a lost ism. And yeah. to kind of clarify just how how superficial people interact on these dating apps, which is, you know, you need to be efficient if you have a million options. For but, sure. Um, the average woman spends 3.19 seconds before swiping right and the average man 5.7 seconds. So there's no way that you can holistically analyze a so human it, being. It implies that women are more looks oriented than men. Is um, that I don't, I, I don't know. Yeah, that, that would I mean, be the opposite of what they I think. Spend a they take a little more time before they swipe left than right. men. So they're less likely to like instantaneously reject someone. Yeah. But if they like someone, they're just, they're sure of it. So I suppose so. You did a crowdsourcing on your Twitter 
of comments asking people what's your experience been and i'm going to read one that somebody wrote to you i want to get your response this is michael ginsburg uh he said dating apps are especially bad for men because they discourage healthy risk taking that becomes more necessary later in life if you can't ask a girl out on a date without an app you won't be able to ask her to marry you or have children you won't learn that life skill now that what he said could be true of men or women but what's your reaction but i do agree that that is a skill set that you need agree with that a hundred percent because it's like dating's become kind of like safe and sanitized which in some ways is good because you know you don't want people just like catcalling right and left all the time but you know i think for a generation especially of young people like having that that safety net or being able to hide behind a screen all the time is not only isolating like it does stunt your your social skills, your development, your risk-taking tolerance. I do think that's a healthy thing. And I I, I wonder how that will impact my generation in the long term, for yeah. sure. And you know, there's this uh, Israeli sociologist, Ava Luz, who says that like these apps are using emotions as commodities. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of writing about this, just about how like just the amount of emotional weight our society is putting into these apps where they're like a you know billions of interactions on a given week and all the money that they're putting in i mean they're capitalizing on loneliness right but in the end my final analysis i think these are a net positive like any other technology Mm. we talk about you can't put the genie back in the bottle so the question is how do we develop a set of norms around this kind of stuff and i think like you know ghosting breadcrumbing all these terms that like some of them are relatively new like you hear people talking about it like how do you engage with people in a respectful way on these apps i think most people who've been around long enough have made a lot of mistakes on the apps and have learned to sort of either be better people or not uh and i think like you're going to see more books more conversations you know more apps that i think yeah. also use the technology as a constraint like thursday <laughs> which might not be the constraint i would adopt but i do think the technology, like people will start flocking to technologies that fit their values better. I think there will also be a pendulum swing with this, especially post pandemic. I, I think it went to an extreme. And at least anecdotally in my generation, there's like a sudden huge emphasis on like meet cutes and meeting people in a normal, natural, mm. authentic way that I think is being celebrated again. So I wouldn't be surprised if we pull back at least to a certain degree from yep. these technologies. I think they've seen their their heyday. One question that I've been thinking about a lot is the relationship between these apps and marriage rates, right? Mm-hmm. Like marriage rates are an all-time low in this country right now. And you know, you have a lot of data that shows that people are successfully meeting their husbands, yeah. wives, significant others in on these apps. But there are a lot of other people who are blaming the apps on the fact that people are getting married later. Mm. What do you think the answer is here? I mean, I don't think there's ever a way to parse out one data point or like one cause for something like that. I think there's a ton of cultural things that are at play here. But I do think the fact that you can, like, I think the paradox of choice is a huge part of that because commitment and settling down when you always have a hundred more options just like within an hour you could probably reach a hundred people i think that's part of it but i mean there there's there are considerable statistics as of 2019 12 percent of american adults ended up in a relationship or um were married from a dating app and that's up from just three percent in 2013 so it's definitely facilitating a larger portion of the marriages that are happening right but it's still among dating app users only 39 percent said that they've either been in a committed relationship or have gotten married from dating apps it's slightly higher in college grads at 44 percent but that's a relationship or getting married and right. it's still less than half of people. Yeah. So I'm not really convinced that, I mean, obviously there's it's going to replace meeting people in person, but I feel like 
probably the people who are getting married off of dating apps are the same people that would have been getting married in general. Right. Like they're probably more commitment oriented. I think that dating apps probably, the reason that that 39% is so low is that it's attracting people who are more exploratory in nature. And there's, I mean, there's different apps for different purposes. And I think that's why Tinder no longer has this like market monopoly because it became like so hypersexualized. And so like the swipe right. feature is so like just appearance and nothing else. And it's like almost like gambling. Like, right. yeah, I, I think that that's well, yeah, why there's all like, those studies about the randomness of gambling, and, right? That that's like one of the like, sort of dopamine. Yeah. And you don't know if you're going to match with someone right. or yeah. So, and there's like, there's a bunch of kind of conspiracy theories in the ether about like how they suppress likes at certain points to get people to come back or they start like mm. popping up notifications and that's just a theory, but right. Tinder has been notoriously secretive about their algorithms. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised because they're raking in so much money because people are lonely and paying for it. Yeah, and I think I think there's a different story for different types of people here, right? Mm -hmm. So I think about my brother who is like incredibly, sh my brother and I are probably great case studies here. I'm a maximizer. So I'm one of those people who like is gonna be like, all right, like we're gonna find the exact right person, mm -hmm. and kind of happy being, you know, on my own and like don't feel the pressure in any way mm -hmm. and like don't have problems meeting people. So to me, I'm like a different kind of user of these types of technology. My brother is very shy. And mm -hmm. for a long time had a, he's the person who that barrier to entry, when you meet somebody, for him, that is a, like a, an extremely stress-inducing encounter, go, trying to go to that bar, trying to have that conversation, mm -hmm. dealing with the embarrassment of rejection. To him, that's like as frightening as any interaction you have. And he met his wife online. And to me, that I would count as a win for the dating apps in the, mm -hmm. in the marriage column. Meaning that is a marriage that might not have ever happened yeah, although, if it wasn't for the app. You know? I would say, like, how old was he when he was on apps when he was? Probably early 30s, I would guess, is when he Because I would her. say, yeah. like, if you're, I, I wouldn't apply that same argument to like a shy 18 year old or 20 year old who's who hasn't like developed. I mean, I'm a super introverted shy person and I'm doing a job that's like requires me to be out and about and right. like, putting my face out there. And that's only because I've done it and kind of forced myself to do it. And I think there's a way where if you, I think they could become a coping mechanism. And yeah. for people who are still developing their character, who still need to have those rejection experiences in order to kind of pick themselves up. And then they do actually meet someone and maybe it doesn't work out, but then right. they have a little more bounce in their step going forward. I think yeah. it could stunt people's emotional development. And that concerns me. One last question for you though, before we move off of this is just the mental health aspects of mm -hmm. this debate. Yeah. Just run us through what we know about how these apps are affecting just the mental well-being of, of yeah. young people or just people in general. So 45% of people using these apps say that they feel frustrated by them um, versus just 28% who say that they make them feel more hopeful. 35% say they're more pessimistic because of them. 25% say they're more insecure as a result of them. Um, and in terms of mental health, there's one study from the University of North Texas that I think is revealing that shows that dating app users have generally considerably lower self-esteem and psychological well-being all over and lower satisfaction with their bodies and their looks. Hmm. And so... I don't know if that's a cause and effect sort of thing, um, but it, I mean, it's hard to kind of, like it's correlated, but it might be that if you're insecure, you might wanna date online more so right. than the other way around. But I would say in general, particularly among young people, I think it's like a self-perpetuating loneliness sort of factor. And studies have shown that there is a feedback loop between like, kind of um, compulsively going through dating apps and feeling lonely and yeah. then just kind of cycling through that forever. And if that's all that you really know about the dating world, then- yeah. Well, dating apps are social media in a, in a way, yeah. right? Like it's it's a cousin of all the data that we've been going through before. 
Well, uh, I think this is, you know, my, my prediction is, you know, we had that wired 20 years on, 10 years after yeah, Tinder. Yeah, that one was eerie, that yeah, quote. Was exactly like 20 really, years. Yeah. Uh, I think 10 years from now, it's very likely we won't be talking about Tinder, but the effects of Tinder, the marriages, the kids that came up because of it, the culture yeah. that it created. And, and that's true of Grindr. That's true of a lot of these technologies. Yeah. I think that the, the effects we'll, will be with us for a while. Or we'll know, be living forever. in the Black Mirror episode. Do you, do you watch Black Mirror? I've only seen like one or two of them. There's one, I think it's called Hang the DJ, where it's like they're in this simulated, or they're, they're in this like weird little bubble relationship thing and they're in the simulation together and you don't realize that they're in a simulation until the end. And it's like this dystopian thing where they like upload people's minds into this thing to test whether or not they'll try to break out of the simulation. And huh. then it says that they're a match or not. It's, it's I, I'm explaining it really poorly, hmm. but there are black mirror dystopian like compatibility factor sort of huh. things that I think we could head down if algorithms are what is deciding who our most suitable matches are. So All right. I recommend well, that what episode. A, what a depressing end to, <laughs> to such a great subject. Uh, let's talk about uh, a gubernatorial race that is heating up in the state of Oregon, where it's basically neck and neck between a Republican and Democrat in a very democratic state, also with an independent candidate surging and within striking distance. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the uh, issue in this state right now is a program that was passed two years ago uh, and that has been in effect for a year and a half that uh, was an ambitious experiment to decriminalize possession of small amounts of heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and other drugs in the state. Essentially yeah. any illicit substance, right. basically. And decriminalize, right? Mm -hmm. So meaning like it's not necessarily legal, but the state is de-emphasizing them in their criminal justice Essentially system. using it is not no longer a criminal offense. If you have it in your possession in a quantity that it's clear that it's for you and not, you're not a distributor. But yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, decriminalization of this sort is basically legalization for personal use. Yep, yeah. But, but the data here has been pretty startling here. So uh, I generally just put my cards on the table, like experiments in this area, because I think that we've been locking too many people up for drugs. I think that I, we should be separating drugs as a, as a health issue from a criminal issue, et cetera. But yeah. I'm not sure. This is not a well thought out one, though. Yeah. Well, at least we learned something. <laughs> you know, I'm not a resident of Oregon, so I think I'd probably feel very differently if I was one of the guinea pigs that was being experimented upon. But let's go through the data and then come out and say, well, what did we learn from this? Because it has happened, and it seems like the state itself is learning. So this the law at issue here is called the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act. This was passed in 2020, and they wanted to wanted to. <laughs> emphasize treatment uh, and de-emphasize criminalization of possession. And essentially what happened is they the state was dealing with really high addiction rates, really high overdose rates. And they said, all right, let's get a system where uh, if you come through the system in Oregon, we're going to give you a citation, essentially the equivalent of a traffic ticket. Like a $100 fine. Yeah. And then they wanted to be like, all right, and we're going to try to direct you to or make available to you treatment. That's what they and, said. And it's predicated on you showing up on your court date Which with people that did ticket. not. Yeah, 81% of people who were ticketed just ignored the fines. Uh, Which is what data. happens when you give drug addicts a ticket. Yeah. And then you just say like, oh, it's 100 bucks and come on this day. Like, yeah. this is a yeah. little shoddy. So that would be, I would say, mistake number one is they didn't... Uh, they're kind of issuing tickets without any teeth here, especially they're not taking into account also the reliability of the population and the pathologies that are common in the population yeah. that they have. Uh, 
Overdose deaths have skyrocketed since this program uh, was passed. Now, they were going up before, to be clear, uh, but they have risen uh, nearly 20% over the prior year. And uh, the data here, like one question I had was, well, are they rising in tandem with the national yeah. data? It seems like they're far up pacing the national data. So yeah. CDC and that's data. 1,000 deaths just, right. just there that year. Right. So this is pretty tragic stuff. You Absolutely. got April 2021 to April uh, sorry, April 2021 to 2022, the U.S. during this period of time saw a 6.92% increase in all drug overdose deaths. Oregon saw an 18.51% increase. So pretty dramatic increase. There's this uh, this organization called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. They came out with a report in December 2021 uh, that ranked Oregon number one in illicit drug use and uh, number 50 in resulting treatment. And this gets mm -hmm. to one of the biggest problems here is they allocated yeah. a lot of money for you know, expanding treatment capacity. They haven't spent most of it. It's, not, it's yeah. not actually getting where it needs to go. And so they're decriminalizing and they're not treating. Yep, and so they're using, they, um, they budgeted $300 million and they've only spent $40 million. Um, that money is coming from, um, some of it at least, is coming from marijuana taxes that they're pulling in now that it's legalized, which I think is a good system to kind of let that filter down to people really struggling with drugs. But um, they're not actually spending it on, on caring for people. Um, and they're failing to get people to accept treatment because these are people who are obviously in really dire situations that are a slave to these drugs, essentially, if they're finding themselves in a place where they're getting these tickets. But they had 16,000 people um, be processed under their system here and 136 opted to get treatment and get help, which is 0.85%, which is just staggering because this is predicated on this concept that like we'll treat people and rehabilitate them. But people who are in the depths of drug addiction like this are not seeking out treatment by and large. And, yeah. you know, a lot of this is also predicated on the model in Portugal, which was pulled off a lot better with yeah. decriminalization. But, you know, there's no perfect world where you can be totally libertarian here and say, let's just let these people self-destruct and overdose and die on the streets because that's a net positive. Like, it, it just isn't. You need to at a certain point decide if we're not going to apply criminal penalties, there needs to be some sort of deterrent yep. to this extreme. And in Portugal, they have the dissuasion commissions is what they call it, which is a little creepy. It name, might be a language translation. Thing. Yeah, um, but it's a, it's it's kind of forceful care in a in a way like you like you need to get treatment if you're if you're but going it's not, to be yeah, the name I think is 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 misleading here because what I read this dissuasion commissions and to be clear this was implemented in two thousand one and has had really good results it's fluctuated over time so and the data is not like it's not increased their outpatient treatment units at the exactly. same time like yeah. they have the in infrastructure to follow through with making sure that people who are not being held criminally liable are being incentivized to to go back into society and get treatment and get help but to make themselves healthy first right. and versus in oregon there's just no like what well, where was the assumption like where wh who was who was thinking in the back of their mind that like all these people are going to just opt into treatment yeah i think so so i think if we're scoring this right we're saying all right what's an ideal system 
Number one is if you're gonna decriminalize, which I, I like the direction of it. I do right? too. So if you're gonna, but I'm frustrated that this is the our first little experiment, and now no one's gonna do it. If you're gonna decriminalize, there are a couple of things you want to do, right? You want to do harm reduction, which they did, which is the, you know stuff we've talked about before, which is uh, things like um, you know needle exchange and um, you know giving people safe injection sites, things like that. That they do. Portugal also does that. Now, the mm -hmm. difference between Portugal, number one that you've outlined is they expanded treatment. So one thing you want to make sure you do if you're going to do harm reduction and decriminalization is you want to make treatment available, which mm -hmm. Oregon hasn't gotten right. Even for the people who want to get it, there's, you know, a lot of these places are over capacity right now. But I think what Oregon really got right, what when you talk about these dissuasion commissions is that they had like a cascading series of, a, of effects that would go into place at each step of the process. So if you get caught with a personal use amount of drugs, you go into the system, and if it's maybe your first time in Portugal, then they're gonna say, all right, uh, maybe you pay a ticket, maybe you don't even, we just register you in the system, you go home. Second time you come through, they're gonna say, all right, we're gonna now, we're gonna allocate a bed for you at a treatment mm -hmm. facility. We're gonna make it available to you, you don't have to use it, but we're making it available to you. And then you may say, I don't wanna use it. And then the third, fourth, fifth time, I don't know what the number is, but at some point, if they feel like you have now exhibited a pattern of behavior, then it becomes more coercive. And they say, all right, now you got to go to this place. I like that. And I particularly like the fact that they've, they've made all this stuff available. They've been pretty targeted about the way they do it, but they treat drug addiction as a health problem, not a criminal problem, mm -hmm. while also having more teeth within the system. That seems like a really good system to me. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem here is that there is legal pressure in every other state to not be a drug addict. And that pressure is felt. It doesn't always work. Yeah. But now Oregon is saying we don't have a legal pressure and we don't also have a treatment pressure either. And clearly this is, I mean, I think that there's going to be a political ramifications there in elections for people who yeah, have been let's champions. Talk about that. But yeah. So 538 has the Republican candidate uh, leading in four of the past five polls and basically slightly ahead, but within the margin of mm -hmm. error. But the independent candidate rising almost um, about 10 points behind. Have a little third party disruptor. Right. And whenever you got three candidates in a race, and uh, in in I would say a fluid race like this, you never know what could happen. And yeah. the idea that, you know, not since the 80s has a Republican or a non-Democrat captured that state house. You're mm -hmm. not seeing a ton of reporting on this. This would be a shocker. And hopefully if, if there is some kind of, you know, unexpected outcome that leads to a discussion and debate about this policy. Now, to be clear, it's not like the existing systems, the more draconian systems are working well. When we send people to prison in this no, country, often not. we're feeding their drug yeah. habit, not solving it, because they're, yeah. not, they're not facilities that are meant to address drug addiction or yeah. any other pathologies that are afflicting these folks. So I don't want to be like, like, I don't want to treat Oregon like they're the one state that's gotten this wrong. Like, we've been getting this wrong for decades all around the country, but I do think that they have some really important lessons. Yeah. There. Just to give you a sense of what this sounds like on the ground during this gubernatorial debate, this is a recent uh, debate between the three candidates. Uh, the first person you're going to hear is the Democrat, and then the response comes from the Republican candidate. We have people dying. We have an addiction epidemic in our state. And we're going to spend time repealing it. You know how much time that takes? How about we just dig in, make sure the dollars are getting out the door to the people who need it. We can we can talk about accountability. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Get more recovery services out there. Make sure folks are accountable and, frankly, get people healthy. And this is the definition of Tina Kotek's approach to the governor's office. Don't change course. Don't change direction. Keep doing more of the same. 
Oregonians need change. If we can't see what's right in front of us on Measure 110, she won't see what needs to be changed in any other category. This is the perfect example of why we need change and we cannot have Tina Kotek as our next governor of the state of Oregon. I think this is a, a larger trend that we're seeing in different iterations with homelessness and with these kind of more radical utopian agendas that might not be, I might agree with in essence, like I, I am pro making drug use decriminalized, but I think that you need to do it in a very careful way, in a very measured way. And if you overstep your bounds, there's going to be a backlash effect that happens consistently. And that's reasonable because there's like societal decay essentially happening. Right. A thousand people, 20% more uh, overdose deaths just over that portion of the year. And other states like Virginia have commissioned studies to see what happens in Oregon and to see how how this pans out as they're considering potential legislation and, and changes. And so I think that people who are at the helm of these kind of more social experiment sort of policies need to be very careful and measured because if they don't execute it properly, the whole community suffers and there yeah. is a political backlash. So I think caution, like there's no perfect fix to this system. Right. And this is a demonstration that just having this ideal that not only will we not criminalize drug use, but people will also be seeking out treatment and it'll yeah. just be this perfect utopia. Like that's sad for people who are in good faith trying to decriminalize and trying to make things easier for people who are struggling. Yeah, my hope with this is that w it doesn't lead to a panic in the opposite direction, right? I do think there has been some progress on the question of drug decriminalization around this country, though imperfect that it is. And this is one of the beauties of federalism is that I don't have, thank God I don't live in Oregon. I don't have to live with the consequences of this. We have our own problems here. Yeah, and, but I, I just think, think it'll have ramifications for other states though. New York has gotten some of this right though. Like if you go back, we'll link to the, the show notes around um, safe injection in New York. I think it's been a pretty organized process so far. And as somebody who's been involved in the sort of criminal justice space here in New York, you know, I run this nonprofit called Second Chance Studios that helps people come out of the prison system and do digital media. Most of them are in there for drug mm -hmm. offenses. Uh, we've been locking people up for too long for that. And we don't invest enough in rehab. Uh, but let's talk about a different kind of rehab, Ricky. Uh, let's talk about jihad <laughs> rehab. What is this documentary a about? Like transition. Yeah. There. <laughs> I, let's let's talk about the jihad rehab and this documentary at Sundance. Uh -huh. What is this thing about? What's the controversy? So this is a film that was um, screened at the Sundance Festival by uh, filmmaker Meg Smaker. And she um, she's, has an interesting story. She, When she was 21, she was a firefighter in California when 9-11 happened and became very interested in radicalization and traveled in Afghanistan and Yemen and spoke Arabic. And so she had some some kind of long-term sense of, of this community and why people become radicalized. But um, she, she, as a white woman, made a movie about a Saudi rehabilitation center for terrorists, which essentially tries to take these radicalized young men and make them into um, members of society again. And she attempted to speak to 150 detainees and got four to speak to her. Um, and the, the movie kind of humanizes them and their story and how they ended up where they are. And so she was bracing for backlash on that basis from conservatives and from patriotic people who might think like, are you sympathizing with the types of people who would carry out a 9-11 attack? But instead, the her immutable characteristic of being a white woman talking about this culture that is not her own and criticizing aspects of, of extremism um, was 
turned out to be the pressure point. And so um, even though she was nominated for one of the most prestigious film festivals um, and it was screened in January to rave reviews, the director of impact and the director of outreach and inclusion at Sundance resigned. And then leaders reversed their approval and their endorsement of this film, apologized. There was this huge fallout that followed. But basically, in my estimation, cancel culture came for her. But yeah, yeah, I think... What's confusing to me, so uh, in some cases, from what I understand, there were actually reversals of reviews, right? Like- yeah. Well, so just to go through the fallout a little more there, um, 230 filmmakers signed a letter denouncing it, the majority of whom had not seen the film. So right. that's an important nuance. Um, but it was... So um, they denounced it on the basis of her identity, I I take it. Yes. Because if you haven't seen the film. And they parsed through um, like different, like the composition of different uh, directors and filmmakers that have been featured at Sundance. So it's it's on the basis of representation. Um, and then, you you know, you have um, South by Southwest that rescinded their their invitation, but also Sundance, which specifically nominated her, which right. is a clear endorsement. And then as soon as there's public backlash, they're like, oh, oops, no, never mind, never mind. Um, funders and producers disavowed it and mm. asked for their names to be removed from the credits. Um, she changed the film's name to unredacted in the face of the backlash. Um, one especially hypocritical thing, in my opinion, though, that happened was Abigail Disney, who's the great niece of Walt Disney, was an executive producer on this. She There's an email that she sent to the filmmaker saying it was, quote, freaking brilliant. And then when backlash came for her, she wrote an open letter of apology mm. and she apologized for causing trauma and part of it, like it kind of sounds hostagey almost. Um, she says she that her quote, mistakes are myriad. So she, so I will not be able to claim all of them in a single list, but I will try. And so it's mm. like this self-flagellating situation. It reminds where, me so much of the American dirt. Uh, you know, this is a novel written about immigrants, Mexican immigrants yeah. uh, that Oprah had endorsed. And Oprah kind of, Oprah didn't fully, from what I understand, reverse course, but basically was like a little bit like, I've got to do some listening and yada, yada. But it makes you wonder like what, you know, this is, I think, so the the the, the level at this is that it is cultural appropriation or a cousin of it. What, is, what is, Tell us what this term means or at least what the sort of, let's, let's like build up the argument, right? Like white person, going to a, a non-white culture, also a different religious culture, mm-hmm. different culture period, covering it. What do we call yeah. that criticism? It's like kind of I a mean, cousin of culture. I think it's like more representation. There's yeah. a lot of conversation around the lack of brown voices being involved in the process of creating the film. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one quote from a Lebanese American filmmaker that said, when I, a practicing Muslim woman say this film is problematic, my voice should be stronger than a white woman saying that it isn't point blank. So Mm. essentially the, the crux of it is identity. There's a separate criticism that I think is interesting and more nuanced that, um, about kind of like journalistic standards essentially and interviewing people who are detained. But I would say, like, the, there's a, a theory that well, if they're they're if they're detained, they can't really consent. Right. But if you're trying to talk to 150 people and four of them agree, I would say that that's. But you I have mean, this issue anytime. Like, yeah, I, I've I've spent a lot of time watching and and you know collaborating with people who've done a lot of work in the prison system, including some people who've done documentaries in the prison system. You have yeah. the same issue there, but 
it's kind of like a common sense thing that the, the listener, the viewer has to understand. Now, one thing we should stipulate too is we haven't been able to see this documentary because of the backlash. So yeah. I, I think we'll keep our sort of analysis to the claims being made yeah. and just take them on the face. <laughs> and, and also right. take on the face the fact that most of the people who are lobbying the didn't either. didn't either. So, yeah, so it is very much based on, super, at least for some of them, on the superficial basis. So, and we have like Sundance who endorsed it, watched it. There were rave reviews. So we yeah. do know that there was a claim. So then I think we, we could brush aside like whether this was a good documentary artistically. We could uh, brush aside some of the journalistic ethic questions because we could only really verify those if we watched it. And then I would say the one claim I want to zero in on is this question of somebody outside of a community. Yeah. Can they come in and cover it, write about it, et cetera? And it made me think about some of my favorite works, right? Hoop Dreams. Amazing documentary, Steve James, white man, directed it. Uh, Middlesex, Jeffrey, it's Eugenides. I, I never knew how to pronounce his name. Uh, he wrote about the intersex community um, or an interse intersex character. American Dirt, we talked about. The publishers had to cancel the tour for, uh, for American Dirt, citing threats to the author and the booksellers. Mm -hmm. You know, and then Beyond the Beautiful Forevers, which is this book written by a New Yorker writer called Catherine Boo, which profiles uh, a family in Anawadi, which is mm -hmm. a, a slum that was eventually cleared that was next to an airport in India. And it's a beautiful book. It's well-written. It's incredible. I think in many ways her outsider status helped her tell that story because if you live in that community, you're subject to many of the coercion, the pathologies, et cetera, that exist. And this makes me think about the Saudi example. If you're in that prison or if you're in Saudi Arabia writing about it, the critics are saying themselves that there's coercion there. So in, in a way, you need some kind of outsider to come in and tell that story if what they're saying is true. But if you compare uh, Catherine Boo, for example, to V.S. Naipaul, who's of Indian heritage mm -hmm. and acclaimed writer, and you compare her, a white woman writing about Indians, to V.S. Naipaul, she's infinitely more kind, brought way more nuance to the story, frankly worked harder than he does to tell a lot of his, than he did to tell a lot of his stories. And he's a guy who by most measures is a sexist, he's a racist, he looks down upon the downtrodden and often characters and makes fun of them in his books. By nature of him being Indian, does that make him a more credible voice? I don't think so. Sometimes it can, but I don't think we should be like excluding people whole scale yeah. from the conversation because they don't perfectly match the characteristics of the people that we're reporting on. Yeah, and you can go down that rabbit hole endlessly and there's always some sort of um, disconnect between someone who's trying to tell another story and the story itself. Like you will never have a perfect one-to-one -one and you can parse out any suite of intersectional characteristics that someone has. And I think that that's one of the problems with, like we used to, I think there was a lot of cultural energy around just specific identity groups and now it's intersectionality and you say, oh, I'm a, like as that person that, that uh, Lebanese American filmmaker said, I'm a Muslim woman. And then you parse out, okay, well then I'm a, I'm an X, Y, and I'm a Z. And then you continue down that route of all your intersectional right. identity points. And ultimately, in at least in my estimation, this this intersectionality, these, these arguments ultimately make the case for individualism right. in the end, even though it's predicated on an argument of group identity. You can parse this out forever. You can disqualify anyone on the basis of their identity and decide that it's not worth listening to what they have to say. Of course, criticize people on the content of the work. Right. Like if there's issues that's in the content here, which unfortunately we can't access because right. it's been effectively censored, then let's talk about that. Let's not talk about the immutability that like, like she can't change that. And I also think it's just, it's there's such a deep rich irony that like the expectation was that 
patriotic conservatives would be the ones to have a problem with this because it is trying to be humanizing and sympathetic and understand or empathetic more than sympathetic but understand what brings someone to this point in time and that's that's a service to society even if they're the most detestable people to understand their their motivations but i also think it gets to a pressure point specifically with islam that kind of we've talked about before where there's there's just an a special like a very special carving out that like you can't touch that at all period right and it's not just her it's not just white woman like you look at ayan hersi ali who's a um, somali born former muslim woman who suffered abuses at the hands of a a highly ideological world that she was born into and has spoken out about it and has been tarnished as an islamophobe despite the fact that she does share the the original identity group with these people but we talked about salman rushdie too you know a member of our staff Aryan, had a good point about this where he was talking about honor killings which is something that he through the daisy crime podcast and other work that he's done has spent a lot of time Mm -hmm. covering this subject right and he talks about well you know sometimes the honor killing is going to happen in pakistan right does that mean he can't report on it as a south asian man because it's across the border but that border didn't exist 100 years ago right but can he not report on it it also involves women right can only women write about honor killings or is he Mm -hmm. allowed to talk about that too you know or is it a human rights issue as i see it right like obviously you want to like understand the issue as much as possible and if i had a critique based on just the limited information I have is like if you have a crew you have a group of people going in to tell a story like you should probably have as yeah. many people who understand that issue as possible which it often of includes the people within that community people, of right course. Yeah. Uh, so do I think it's a death sentence for the documentary like a lot of these people say no it probably could have made the team a little bit better but I don't know because I didn't watch the documentary yeah. right yeah. but you know it's how we treat things here right like I'm an Indian who lives in the United States has never been to India. Catherine Boo knows more about India than I do. I have friends who are not Indian who know more than I do. I have a buddy who speaks Hindi and wrote for the Times of India and he's a white, uh, half white, half Argentinian guy. Like these things can get complicated, right? And so like, I think there's a little bit more humanity and I do think you have to broaden these things out. I think it's like the debate that's going on in Tehran right now um, around the protests there, right? Are we not allowed to celebrate uh, people who are asking for human rights that we take for granted in this country because we're not part of that culture? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I think excluding voices from trying to grapple with the toughest questions that we're dealing with as a global culture is just the worst possible thing that we can do. Right. And, you know, critique people on the basis of their content, not yeah. on the basis of who they are and what they can't change. Yeah, and let me use one example to close, which, because I think, like, on the left, it's fashionable to make fun of Scientologists, which I totally applaud, because I think Scientology is a cult and it's insane, but it is a religion. Uh, now, it's totally fine to make fun, unless you're in Hollywood, it's totally fine to make fun of Scientologists. HBO did a documentary <sighs> And the New Yorker writer, Lawrence Wright, did a book uh, about Scientology. Other than Scientology, nobody gave a shit about the fact that he's outside of Scientology. And actually, that book would have been impossible coming from inside of Scientology, right? And that gets to the point of this documentary. Yes, a Muslim could have done this documentary, but a person in Saudi Arabia might not have been able to do a good job because of the very stuff that some of the critics are saying. Like, sometimes it takes an outsider 
to tell a story either because of coercion or sometimes just an outsider's eye is is different and adds something different to the debate than somebody who's inside and sometimes both are good like there was yeah. i forget the person who did it but there was another documentary about scientology that came from somebody who came outside of the scientology community that also has been airing that mm -hmm. i found really interesting and the combination of those two things is actually really interesting to me and one doesn't preclude the other yeah absolutely and i mean it's not even a a consistent standard that we're applying like if you if if this is the standard of who can speak about what then the next target should be robin d'angelo who's enriching herself off of the yeah, basis well, of, of I don't, yeah let's race. go after her. no i'm not i'm not <laughs> I'm advocating kidding. that but i'm saying like it, like the standards are not even coherent across right. the board and there are certain times where we allow people to speak across um experiential divides and there's other times where we just attack and bankrupt a filmmaker because people just kind of glommed on top of each other and, and signed letters without even watching her film. Yeah, it's embarrassing. Uh, well, if she's listening, you know, we'd love to see this documentary. And if anybody has access to it, um, I mean this sincerely, uh, we'd love to know how to see it so we can do an update on the story and talk about the actual content and quality of it. That's all we have today. Uh, we want to thank our listeners. We'll be right back here next week. Uh, you can subscribe, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, where we get that, or on our YouTube channel, hit that like button, share this episode with your friends, and we'll see you then.